Before we start today's Beef Watch podcast, I wanted to take a moment to thank you for being a listener. During the month of November, the Nebraska Extension Beef Team is asking for your feedback on the podcast. What content has been most valuable to you? And what topics would you like to see discussed in the future? If you'd be willing to take a few minutes to fill out a brief survey, we'd really appreciate it. The survey can be found at beef.unl.edu, and it's located there at the top of the homepage. Thanks again for being willing to do that for us. We really appreciate your feedback, and we hope you enjoy today's podcast. Welcome to the Beef Watch Podcast. I'm Aaron Berger, a Nebraska Extension Beef Educator. For today's Beef Watch Podcast, we're going to discuss the topic of considerations for corn silage that was harvested too wet or too dry. To discuss this topic, I'm joined today by Dr. Mary Junowski, who's a beef system specialist at the University of Nebraska. Thanks for joining me today. Well, Aaron, thanks for inviting me, and I always enjoy our conversations. Well, Mary, I've been getting some questions from producers. I've seen some corn silage tests comes in. Some of it's been running over 80% moisture. And then conversely, I've seen some come in that was actually less than 50% moisture. That's outside of the window we really want to see corn silage harvested at. And when we get outside of that optimum window, we start to get into some scenarios where the quality of the silage and the impact of fermentation is not what we want it to be. Share with us some things to consider as we look at corn silage this year, maybe because of drought conditions or hail that wasn't harvested at its optimum. What are some things to pay attention to with that? Well, I think um, the first thing, you know, you said too wet, which we often see in drought or hail because the leaves start browning off and people get antsy that it's getting too dry. And we always, uh, <laughs> they always overestimate the dry matter content of leaves because it's only about 15% of that uh, plant material. So it's not uncommon. Uh, so with too wet, um, the biggest concern is actually getting uh, clostridial fermentation. So it's a different type of fermentation that it's very inefficient. Uh, so you don't get uh, as much capture of dry matter and energy. In fact, um, it is unstable. It'll continue to deteriorate over time. So it never actually gets to that phase where we want in fermentation, where it actually just stops and it's preserved, you know, kind of like the idea of pickling. It doesn't actually do that. So it continues to get worse. So one of the first considerations is if you have it too wet and you have butyric acid present, that tells you you got the clostridia fermentation and it tells you you might as well start using it as quickly as possible because it's only going to get worse. So butyric acid uh, I said, it basically smells like rancid butter. Most people have probably seen coming out of a pile that black, uh, nasty smelling uh, effluent. That's butyric acid. But you don't have to have concentrations high enough to be uh, coming out of the pile for you to have the wrong type of fermentation. So you really should get a test and see. You have to get a fermentation analysis test, not just a feed analysis. So how would you do that, Mary? I mean, if I think, you know what, I saw my pile weeping, I'm concerned about what I might have, what would be the best way to get a test on that? Because for many producers, they're thinking about using that later this winter or spring. Maybe they got cows out on corn stalks now, things like that. 
What are some strategies they should do to know now if they have an issue? Well, I think the first question is, um, are you actually going to change your decision if you know, (laughs) right? Um, Because it is hard to get a good uh, sample until you actually start feed out. Um, But I do have some people that will sometimes, if, if they don't have a really tall pile, I worry a little bit, you know, you don't want to have to be getting around your silage pile too much if it's super tall and you have that danger of collapse. But if if people don't have a super tall pile, I'll see where they'll actually use something like a post hole digger and maybe dig into the side. And you really want to get beyond three feet and then pull out some sample and then get that tested. That's probably one of the few ways that I can think of without actually just starting to open it up and feed it out. What about you, Aaron? Have you seen some different methods being used? I haven't, Mary. I think, you know, as you've said, it's really hard to know what you got until you get into the pile. But, you know, for people who are doing some planning, it might be, hey, if I've got a situation that isn't what I want it to be, knowing now might give me some thoughts around what I should do later. So, yeah, I don't don't have any good ideas beyond what you've presented. Okay, so the other thing is when I said a fermentation analysis, not all labs will do a fermentation analysis. So you have to find one that will. Um, almost all dairy labs do it, of course. So Dairy One, Dairy Land, um, Rock River, Cumberland Valley, those are just a few that I can think of that actually do a fermentation analysis. And what you're really looking at is it'll tell you on their the pH. And that's another good indicator you want to look for. You um, really would like, you know, a pH of, you know, at least 4.3. Lower is better. (laughs) And then you're looking at butyric acid for this wet silage. You have a concern about having it above 0.5% of dry matter. Pretty much tells us we're in that zone we don't want to be. The higher, uh, the worse, of course. And then um, the the thing you got to remember is that it's basically that those bacteria will also continue to even eat the lactic acid that gets produced. And the lactic acid is the stuff that actually preserves it. So it's kind of like the vinegar you might put in pickles. Um, So the lactic acid is what we want. So we want, you know, higher concentrations of that, like four um, or better. Um, But the problem is that over time, it's going to continue to decline and your pH can actually increase because the the bacteria are actually utilizing that lactic acid, which is not good. Um, so in addition to the the loss of energy and the continued loss over time, you also have some palatability issues. So if you have really high butyric acid, you may not be able to feed as much as you would like um, because they won't eat it as well. So what I hear you saying is if I take a sample and I've got a pH that's higher than I want it to be, and I've got levels of butyric acid, the silage pile is not very stable. We're going to continue to see deterioration and what I have today may not be what I have two months from now. Correct. So the sooner you can use it, the better. And if you take that sample now for actually determining the feed value, if you are going to use it in two months um, and you decide that, well, I just nothing I can do, you better test it again in two months. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah. So you're saying it's not stable. It's going to continue to deteriorate and quality will be worse two or three months from now than it is now. Correct. Exactly. So now let's talk about dry. So dry is a little bit different, right? Because usually there's a couple of things going on there. 
uh, one of which is that um, if it's too dry, you actually just don't get the fermentation acid production. Um, you also have a hard time getting it packed, which usually means you have more oxygen. And all of those things, of course, result in uh, poor uh, preservation of the dry matter. And again, energy loss. But um, one of the things that's the real concern with too dry is actually getting more mold and yeast growth. Okay, so mold, um, some of those molds can produce toxins, um, which uh, can create problems for cattle, of course. So one of the things is if if you know, and you probably will know that your silage was put up too dry, um, if you think it's put up too dry, you really want to not only get a fermentation test, which will tell you if you got it preserved well, meaning, again, we're going to look for that low pH, we're going to look for that higher lactic acid content, you know, above 4%. If you have those, I feel a lot better about the stability. If you don't, um, then you might have even more mold and ease continue to grow. And so again, it's not stable. Um, but also we need to look for mold and yeast to see uh, whether or not we have potentials for those toxic compounds. So the first test you want to do, you want to do your fermentation test and go ahead and get a mold count and ID uh, because the count and the ID will tell us whether we need to start looking for toxins because that's a more expensive test. Um, the ID will tell us whether or not the types of mold you do have present are potential toxin producers. And the count will tell us if we have enough numbers of those guys to be worried about, if that makes sense. So again, those same types of labs will do that for you and they will report back and tell you um, the information you need to know. Um, so if you come back and you're high on mold and you have types that produce toxins, the next step would be actually to get some some uh, toxin tests. If you send in a sample, they uh, will send you back those results. And if we decide that we we need to get a test, you can actually just tell them to test the same sample that you that you already asked. They often keep those samples um, for a period of weeks after. So once you get the results, you can make that decision if that makes sense. A couple other things to think about because there's a higher likelihood of that sample having some mold in there, we are creating an environment where when it gets exposed to oxygen again, let's say it did ferment and you did get some, some acid and so it did stop the mold from growing. As soon as you open it up, it's going to be at more risk for deterioration as it gets exposed to oxygen. So that means one of the key things is the management of the face. So you really want to minimize the amount of time that the feed gets exposed to oxygen before you feed it. Because once you have some mold present, they grow very, very quickly, right? So what you actually test that's fresh, like off of a face will be very different if your feed out rate is slow because like three feet into the pile, it's getting exposed. So we tell people, in the winter, six to 12 inches is kind of what we're targeting for feed out, at least six inches. Um, and then you want to make sure that when you're taking off the face, you're actually scraping the bucket down and you're not digging in because as you dig in, you create cracks for oxygen to get in and then you can get more mold growing. In addition to the problems with the mold, it uses up 
the energy that you're trying to feed to the animal. So the mold eats it instead of the animal, which is no good. Plus the mold can have, you know, the potential negative effects of those toxins for that animal. So as we think about the silage that was too wet and the silage that's too dry, what's the strategy for now feeding it to the animals? What are some things to be aware of? And again, I realize if there's some toxins that enters into this, but let's start with the silage that was too wet. What's some things to be aware of there? Yeah. So I think with the silage is too wet. One thing you do have to remember is that um, you can create a diet that um, has actually too much moisture and will limit intake. Um, So like, let's say you happen to want to start feeding it out, like right after you, um, you made it, you could still limit intake just because, you know, you're getting to really high moisture contents, but likely at this point, most people, the problem is going to be that it is high in butyric acid, which means that really that just affects mostly palatability. Although you can have sometimes like the clostridial growth, especially if you had soil contamination, actually cause some problems actually in the animal with just that type of bacteria. So we really want to make sure that we minimize how much we feed if we do have that clostridial uh, fermentation. And I don't have a real great number for how high we can go, but I really try not to make it the sole component of a diet. And I try to minimize, you know, to lower percentages of the diet just to make sure that I'm going to be able to get the cattle to eat and meet their needs, if that makes sense. Yeah. So let's talk about the stuff that's too dry now. How do you how do you think about that? And again, I guess after you get the test back, there's probably some parameters that set how much you can feed and how you handle it. Yeah, I think the big one um, for the too dry is it's again, it's really about we want to make sure we have high enough feed out rates. So that one, um, we're balancing a couple things there because if we get the mold counts back and it's high, especially if it's high in something that produces the toxin, the toxin probably tells us how much in the diet we can include. But we also want to make sure we're feeding out enough to where we do have that high feed out rate. So we might end up like looking at other animals in the herd to start feeding it to. Like I see a lot of people wanting to use silage, for instance, for their heifers um, or young cows, but not for their old cows. But sometimes we decide we need to include it in another group's diet just to get the feed out rates higher so that we don't continue to have like higher and higher levels of mold being fed, if that makes sense, to those animals we're actually trying to use it for. So that's probably the big one is that there may be a cap on how much in a particular animal's diet because of the toxins that are in there. But we're also balancing that with probably, I see most piles be too big for the number of animals you're trying to feed. So that's balanced with trying to get the feed out rate right, like so getting it higher. Um, So sometimes that means finding other animals to feed it to, to be honest. Oh, one other thing that really I see a lot of is the dry silage. It's definitely something that you don't want to be pulling off more than that day's worth because, well, mold grows exponentially, meaning that a 24 hour period, you'll have a lot of mold growth in that loose stuff that got all exposed to oxygen. And so you'll end up feeding something that's much worse um, than what you pulled off that day. So you want to make sure that you're only pulling off today's and that you're not pulling off some and maybe taking it over to another area. You want to be feeding off of the surface every day. That's really, really important with dry stuff that might have some higher mold counts. 
So as we think about, we're in recording this in November, we're starting to have some pretty cold weather. How does air temperature impact what we might see happen with these piles? Yeah, well, I mean, air temperature is kind of our friend in this case, because the colder temperatures actually do help because it will slow down the the growth of, of mold uh, on the surface. But especially if that stuff didn't actually get to um, preserved state, like high enough acid, then you might have enough uh, growth happening that it keeps it warm inside the pile. So it might still be deteriorating, if that makes sense. So it helps us in terms of the target feed out. In fact, if I was telling you in the summer, I'd actually tell you you need 12 inches or more uh, for a feed out rate. But in the winter, you can get down to six, if that makes sense. The problem is that that pile is pretty good at being an insulation uh, factor. So uh, I don't think from the standpoint of deterioration, it's going to slow it down that much if you don't have a stable silage pile. Mary, what are some other things we should consider if we're looking at silage that was harvested too wet or too dry? Well, I do think um, I did have some questions actually the other day. Somebody, it, this was small grain silages, but it was at 50% moisture uh, when they put it up. And so he's like, I didn't get it packed. Well, we did get analysis on it. Um, the mold counts didn't look too bad. But one of his questions was, well, are my um, growing animals more uh, of a problem to feed this to, or would it be my pregnant cows, right? So he's wondering which ones are more susceptible to the mold. And uh, for, for the most part, when we think about reduced performance, unless it's the mold types that actually can create abortions, and there are some that uh, can do that, um, like he had, because we ID'd it, he had um, more aspergillus, which would be actually a fairly common one you might get in corn silage and it can produce aflatoxin um, and it is very common in drought stress corn. So it's, that's again, that's why we want to test it. Um, but he had accounts that were low enough. It was on the higher end of safe that I wasn't too worried about either group, but for the aflatoxin, I'd be much more worried about him seeing some perform negative performance responses on the growing calves. Right. So a lot of people are really concerned about abortions um, and there are a few toxins that can do that. But in general, I actually think we tend to see more intake issues and uh, performance reductions in growing animals, especially around weaning. So if you have some of that silage that maybe didn't get put up right, I definitely wouldn't include it in the ration during that stress period at weaning. I would wait to start adding it into the diet a little bit later. And then the kind of the same idea, like, you know, once you start thinking about who am I more worried about, you know, that early lactation period where they're getting, where those cows are getting a little bit um, more stress and higher requirements, that's probably the next most susceptible time. So actually those pregnant cows, unless we have the specific abortion causing um, toxins, I think they're actually pretty safe to give it to, if that makes sense. Mary, what are some resources that you would point people to on this topic that might be helpful to them as they evaluate what they've got for silage and then how do they manage the situation they have? So um, Michael Carlson, he was our toxicologist. He actually did write a, a NEB guide that's on uh, molds and toxins, which is quite helpful. I would also say that 
again, feel free to give somebody at Nebraska Extension, myself, a call um, when you get your results back. If you just want somebody to look through it and think about it, the labs will tell you the counts on the mold and they'll tell you the ID and that it can produce a toxin or not and what it is. Um, but they don't actually give you an interpretation because it kind of depends like dairy cows, you know, are a little bit more um, sensitive um, than beef cows. So they don't actually give an interpretation. So if you want some help with that interpretation, um, we can do that for you. So I think that would be, I'd say you can look at uh, Mike Carlson's uh, NEB guide, or you can just, you know, give us a call and we'll try to give you a hand. Mary, thanks for your time today. I appreciate your thoughts and your input. Uh, well, I, I hope that everybody gets their tests back and it looks good. <laughs> um, but if not, you know, give us a call and we'll try to help. So appreciate the opportunity to get the message out to uh, people today. For more information on the topic that was discussed in today's Beef Watch podcast, I would encourage you to visit the beef.unl.edu website. Dr. Murray Janowski's contact information is available at the website. And also we have additional resources on this topic.